Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream is a total chocolate game changer. We start with unbelievably creamy dark chocolate ice cream. Then we add different chocolate treats, like chocolate cookies, chocolate cake, or chocolate brownies to make four decadent chocolate flavors. Because sometimes the thing that pairs best with chocolate <laughs> is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy. Hello and welcome to Hysteria. I'm Erin Ryan. I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco. Alyssa, I have a really important question this week. I am ready. Why are onions so fucking big? Okay, so it's very funny that you say this because I too have struggled with the size of onions lately. I mean, Eric, they're as big as my head and you're looking they're at my so head. Bi- yeah, they're huge. They're huge. And then it's like you look at a recipe and it's like one medium sized onion and you're like, okay, well, this is like elephantitis of the onion. And so <laughs> what do I do? So I cut it in half and then if I have time sometimes, I just caramelize the shit out of them to use for the rest of the week, but part of onion that I don't eat. Oh, that's that's a good plan that a functional adult would have. But well, I <laughs> let's be clear. I came to that after I started wrapping them in saran wrap and putting them back in the vegetable bin where everything then smelled like a very aggressive onion. You're going to make your fridge smell terrible. My husband does that and he cannot be stopped. His <laughs> desire to wrap up extra onions is just uh, it's it's more powerful than the smell of onions in a fridge. It's just it will not end. But yeah, they're too big. I give me a medium sized onion. I pray for a medium sized onion. Just one and done, you know. Yeah, Aaron, we're answering the big questions this week. <laughs> this week, Senator Amy Klobuchar, Representative Lauren Underwood, Alicia Menendez, and Julissa Arce joined to tackle the following questions. Pushing for voting reforms, emceeing inaugurations, befriending Mayor Pete. When does Senator Amy Klobuchar sleep? Just how much will one provision of the American Rescue Plan save you on health insurance premiums? What is likability, and why can chasing it be more trouble than it's worth? And which bird would make the best neighbor? A blue jay, a bluebird, or a raven? All this and more right now. All right, we have a lot to get to today, but first, um, let's talk a little bit about what's been going on in the news. You know, just as I have felt like okay, cool. I'm going to start following policy and politics again. Boom. We are right back into having mass shootings. Alyssa, you were, you texted me fuck guns, right? This week? Fuck Fuck guns. Guns. Yeah. You were not the only person to text me fuck guns. That's why I I double checked. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I, uh, I grew up with guns in my house. Uh, My dad has guns. Uh, You know, he uses them to hunt animals that he eats legally. No, that's what they're used for. And uh, I am coming to the side of fuck guns this week. This Here's how I feel. Because you, as you know, I'm in upstate New York, a lot of guns. When I was in high school, the first day of hunting season was an announcement akin to, hi, everyone. We know you went hunting this morning, but you got to bring your guns home at lunch. And so, <laughs> true story. Oh, my so, God. I am I am fine with people who have guns that are legally and properly obtained and that sole purpose isn't mass destruction. Like, mm-hmm. why do we need semi-automatic weapons, Aaron, in America? 
Because men don't want to go to therapy. Uh, I mm-hmm. think that's the best answer I can come up with. Um, you know, I was, I think a lot about like the way that these debates go and how every time there's a mass shooting, there are people who are saying that they need guns to keep their families safe. Keep their, they need to keep, keep people safe. Guns keep us safe. If everybody just had guns, we'd be safe. Why are these people not worried about pe- keeping people safe in literally any other context? Is there a vet, like if you could draw a, a Venn diagram between people who say that people who like, you know, kind of give us sob stories about guns, keep, oh, they keep us safe, keeping us safe, and people who complain about wearing masks, which is something that is medically proven to keep people safe, I feel like that's a circle. I feel like people who say that we need guns to pe- keep people safe aren't really interested in keeping anybody safe. They're just interested in having guns. I think you might be onto something. I mean, Lauren Bobart has a whole fucking wall of guns, and she wasn't able to stop what happened in Colorado. I thought they were to keep people safe, Lauren. What were you doing with them? I know. I know. And also, you know, because I know very little about guns, I think it's, you know, every terrible mass shooting in America going back to forever was done by an AR-15. Why? Why? It seems like if we got rid of the AR-15, we'd really solve some fucking problems in this place. Yeah. it's And it and it's like, uh, it's so frustrating because it is such a, it just seems like unsolvable. So many people want to do something about this. And then we have, you know, a Joe Manchin shaped barrier in between us and getting fucking anything done. And it's, it's like, I mean, I almost feel like we should try to push for like trolley state level laws that say, or or state constitutional amendments that say it cannot legally be more difficult to vote than it is to buy a gun. It can be more difficult to buy a gun than vote, but it can't be legally more difficult to vote than it is to buy a gun. And I guarantee you that like some shit would move around. I mean, I'm with you. And you know, the thing that just gets me is that every time we see something like this happen, when it is the when it is the movie shooting in Aurora, when it is the grocery store shooting in Boulder. I don't know about you. I'm immediately like, that could be, it could have been anybody. We all go to the grocery store. We all go to the movie theater. Well, at least before COVID. And like, I guess I'm just curious about all the Republicans in the Senate. Like, if they've never been to a grocery store, I'm like, are they mm-hmm. all, like, do they, do these things that are happening just not resonate with them at all? I mean, there there was a shooting that involved members of Congress just a few years ago, and Representative Steve Scalise almost died. You know, totally. I com- I honestly had f- completely forgotten about that. There's so many You're of them right. that it's completely understandable that we would forget about these things. But it's like I don't. I I feel like I'm trying to like cook something. Without a really important ingredient. Can you tell I'm hungry today? I'm thinking about food. No, but I feel like when I'm trying to figure out what's going on with the gun thing, like I feel like I must be missing something because it just doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense to me that it's this impossible for us to get anything done. Also, like I wish I could take a time machine and go back in time for five minutes and teach the founding fathers how to use a fucking comma in the Second (laughs) Amendment. Because if they figured out how to use a goddamn comma, we wouldn't have... We would have these problems. That is, uh, that is very true. Yeah. Okay. Well, packed show. I'm sure we have more to say on guns and we're going to do more stuff on guns inevitably because I hate to sound cynical, but I, I feel like 
this is going to happen well, again. Aaron, seven mass shootings in seven days in America. So yeah, you're right. It's going to happen again, probably sooner rather than later. Yeah. And we'll be talking about it more. Um, but in the meantime, uh, we have some guests we need to get to, mm. and we're going to get to talk about this with, with them. So uh, let's get to it. Coming up, our interview with Senator Amy Klobuchar. And welcome back. Today, we are beyond excited to welcome Senator Amy Klobuchar. As we say in the Midwest, oh, for neat. You know her from her work on many Senate committees, including the powerful Senate Judiciary Committee. You know her as a presidential candidate who made the primary debates significantly more enjoyable to watch. If you're lucky enough to be from Minnesota, she's been your senator since 2007. And in 2016, she was the senator who got the most bills signed into law. Welcome, Senator Amy Klobuchar. Well, thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Alyssa. It's great to be on. And by the way, as you were talking about the presidential primaries, I did I did want to note that uh, this weekend I stayed in Washington this past weekend and I hung out with Mayor Pete, now Secretary uh, Pete. So oh, he you and did. I, oh, we went on a walk. We had lunch with his dogs. It was actually, he's he's great and he's doing really well. Oh, that's awesome. Did you film it to make a montage out of it? No, I, well, there were some people who saw us that were kind of in shock about the situation and took a few <laughs> selfies. So it's been somehow, you know, put, but it was, it oh, was I, great. I love that. I want, I want regular updates on this friendship. This is great. Okay. I know, no, we've gotten along for quite a while. That's great. That's great to hear. Um, so today we're recording on a Wednesday. You came to us fresh from chairing the Senate's first hearing on the For the People Act, also known as HR1. So why are Republicans freaking out about this so hard and using hyperbolic words like chaos to describe what will happen <laughs> if it passes? What are they so afraid of? I think that's such a great question uh, because, uh, come on now, these are reforms that are in place in many, many states, including a number of red states. One of the biggest states for vote by mail is Utah, not exactly a bright blue bastion of liberalism. And the point is that these are things that they're afraid of. Uh, the last election, um, they lost the presidential in a big way. A record number of people voted, which was just inspirational, given that we were in the middle of a pandemic. So Democrats and Republicans and independents voted in record numbers. Why? Uh, because they felt it was their constitutional duty. And here's the key. In a number of states, it became easier to vote. The pandemic pushed people to say, OK, we'll try vote by mail, state said. OK, we'll stop making people uh, have a notary public come to their hospital room when they have COVID that they've got to have. This is a true story. Someone sign an affidavit through the window of the hospital room. So all of that stuff changed. And my argument today was, so why would you close the door? Uh, there was no fraud in this election. It is very clear Trump's own Homeland Security Department said it was the safest election in American history. So you want to keep those reforms in place. And what's been going on is now there's over 300 bills introduced to dial it back, to suppress the vote, to make it harder to vote. And so that's what this bill. And they are afraid because instead of changing their policies or their messages or maybe even their candidates, they're doubling down and they said, well, how can we win? Well, the only way to win is to lop off those voters that turned out sometimes for the first time. And that's why this bill is so important. And it's as Trevor Potter, who was my favorite witness, there are great witnesses, of course, Eric Holder. And I won't go, stop, you know, the secretary of state of Michigan, who is incredible. But the former Republican chair of the Federal Election Committee came and testified for the bill. 
because his point is this doesn't necessarily help one party or the other. Let's face it, Montana had record numbers. They did vote for Republicans in the last election. So it doesn't help one party or another, but what it does is it makes people feel part of a democracy. They have a say. That's what we're supposed to do. Senator, you recently came out in support of eliminating the filibuster because passing the For the People Act is so critical. Joe Biden and several Senate Democrats ran on platforms that can only be enacted if they make it through the Senate. Is there any chance that these legislative priorities will make it through the Senate with the filibuster still intact? We're going to try. But one of the reasons that I have come out in favor of getting rid of the filibuster and have been advocating for reform now and part of efforts to reform it for years, as someone you pointed out, Aaron, who does work across the aisle all the time, at some point you've got to get stuff done. The voters voted for change. Think about the America Rescue Plan. Uh, which was welcomed by and supported by Democratic and Republican voters overwhelmingly. It seemed like every Republican wanted it, except the people that worked in this building. Okay, if we had just gone and negotiated and negotiated through the summer, it would have been a disaster. We wouldn't have had the money out for the vaccines. In this case, we had to use this archaic procedure called reconciliation to do it with 51 votes, right? 51 votes. Well, that's what this is about. There's other important things that we have to do that don't fit into that reconciliation box, including democracy reform, including the work that needs to be done on everything from climate change and renewable energy to the work that needs to be done on, say, given the tragedies we just saw in Colorado and what we just saw, sadly, in Atlanta, simple things like background checks. We have Republican support for background checks, but we never made it to 60 votes. So I guess we don't have something that 80 percent of the people in this country want to see, 90 percent of the people in this country. So that's my answer. Are there any colleagues in particular that you think would rather risk our democracy to hold on to the filibuster as it is? (laughs) I'm not going to name any names because I think people are, I don't want to use that time-worn phrase evolving on this issue, but I think uh, people are starting to think, wow, even if we want to raise the minimum wage some, I'm in favor of 15, but we're not going to be able to do it if they block it. And as we push you know, once again and once again uh, for things that the American people have been waiting for for years, uh, including help with student loans and the like, I think it's going to become very clear uh, what we need to do. And it was uh, Senator Warnock who I think said it best. He basically said, why are we all worried about protecting the minority rights in the U.S. Senate? (laughs) instead of the minority rights of voters. Um, And the other favorite thing he said, uh, which I just loved, uh, which is to me encapsulates this for the people bill back to the election stuff. Uh, He said eight words that's probably better than anything I'll say on the interview. When asked, why is this happening? He said, because some people don't want some people to vote. It's that (laughs) simple. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, pretty well put. Um, so to pivot to something that you just brought up, Senator, um, this week, 10 people in Colorado lost their lives to gun violence. It's the seventh mass shooting in seven days in the U.S. What should the legislative response be to this tragedy? Um, and how do Democrats pass common sense gun legislation when Republicans are a brick wall on the issue? How did Democrats get from should to did? 
Um, well, I actually have been through uh, on this issue the experience of going to uh, the White House when Donald Trump was president and seated next to uh, Mike Pence when there was that very infamous discussion that's on TV after Parkland, uh, where President Trump, I counted, I actually have a piece of paper with hashtags, uh, said something like eight, nine times that he was in favor of universal background checks. He said it, okay? And then the next day he goes and meets with the NRA and changes his mind. Um, uh, Vice President Pence, actually, I talked to him during the meeting and after, uh, favor doing something uh, with those extreme risk protective orders, which could be very helpful in some cases. Um, but that, that never really happened on the federal level. Uh, we have background checks, something that Senator Toomey and Senator Manchin have led on and continue to be in favor of. And again, because of the opposition from the White House and the failure to get to 60 votes, that didn't happen. These are all common sense things we could do. Assault weapon ban. Um, the, my bill, uh, which is actually could pass independently of gun legislation. Why? Because it already has in the House with 29 votes of Republicans. Uh, that's the bill that says if you have been convicted of domestic violence, right now, if it involves someone you're married to, you can't go out and get a gun. But in some states right now, if it's someone that's a dating partner, you can. And even the Republican witnesses a few years ago at a hearing said this was a huge loophole. A conservative sheriff from Racine, Wisconsin, uh, said that dating partners shoot just as hard and hit just as hard as married partners. And so that's in there as well as a provision that says if you've been convicted of stalking uh, that you can't go out and get a gun. That's really relevant to some of the hate crimes and what we've seen with women and what's happening. And so that bill is in the Violence Against Women Act. That would be the first major piece of gun legislation to pass if we can take up the Violence Against Women Act. And given that we picked up 29 Republican votes on it, that would be a significant beginning but certainly not an end. When you look at the background check, high-risk um, provisions we could uh, do and some of the other very good, sensible ideas that are out there, including an assault weapon ban. And now to another bill you've introduced, the Competition and Antitrust Law Enforcement Reform Act. Which you is really a- know how to pick up a discussion, Alyssa. <laughs> yes, Let yes, me yes, tell you. Okay. That yes, is designed yes, yes, yes. to reform... <laughs> Antitrust laws. It's a very complicated and often hard to follow issue if you're not already familiar with the language. Can you break down the issue and what you're seeking to reform when it comes to antitrust laws and how does this affect everyday Americans? So if you wonder why your cable prices have been so high for so long, uh, why don't you look at if there's competition or not? Uh, Usually in areas there's not. If you wonder why airfares are so high when you're maybe in a small or mid-sized city to do a link compared to another one, well, you should look at competition. If you wonder uh, why there's only, if you're a farmer and you're trying to ship seeds to market and you got really high rates for rail, the last leg, well, that's because right now there's only four freight rail, there used to be dozens and dozens of them uh, that uh, are called class one freight rails, which by the way, is the exact same number on the monopoly board. Cat food, cat food, complete consolidation. Uh, John Oliver did a piece on this and showed for half an hour all the consolidation and online travel, of course, with Google and Facebook and the tech companies, and then ended by saying, if that's enough to make you wanna die, uh, good luck. 
because there's only three <laughs> casket companies left in America. And by the way, one has now bought the other, so there's only two. And so in the history of our country, competition uh, has meant that, that lower rates, think about the breakup of AT&T. Even the chairman of AT&T said it, they came out of it stronger. That created longer, much lower long distance rates and a really, really successful cell phone industry that at, before it started, your cell phones were like, we fit in a briefcase, you know, think like Gordon Gecko on the Wall Street movie. <laughs> and so we need this rejuvenization of capitalism. Democrats and a Republican passed the Sherman Act, which is kind of the bill. Adam Smith, the godfather of capitalism, always talked about his fear of the overgrown army of monopolies. And so we've always rejuvenated and this is a time to do it when we've got these gateway tech companies, Google literally and Facebook were willing to hold an entire country, the country of Australia, hostage because they didn't want to pay for news content. And they literally could say, we're going to leave and then you won't really have anyone. That's what monopolies do. <laughs> and so there are so many exciting things we can do. And I'll just put the main things. And this one has huge bipartisan support. It's Klobuchar Grassley. Uh, Get some more funding to the agencies. You can't take on the biggest companies in the world with duct tape and Band-Aids. The Trump administration actually at the very end, uh, Commissioner Simon of the FTC and uh, Macon Delraheim at the D uh, Department of Justice brought these suits against Google and Facebook. They did the right thing, but now we have to continue them on. So there's bipartisan support to change some fee structures on big mergers and it wouldn't be taxpayer money to fund these agencies. Big deal. That's the first most bipartisan thing. Uh, secondly, do something going forward about mergers uh, to change the burden on the big ones so that they have to actually prove that they don't hurt competition, not radical. Third thing, existing industries as they are now. Uh, when Mark Zuckerberg, uh, was, it was discovered in an email he sent, this is true, it came out in the great house hearings my friend David Cicilline did. <laughs> the email said, we would rather buy than compete. Okay, we've got a problem. He's talking about buying competitors. Uh, when mm -hmm. he said, uh, these companies may be nascent now, um, I'm paraphrasing this, they may be nascent now, but uh, you know they are in our brand and they have their own brand and they could become very disruptive to us. That's what tech is supposed to do. It's supposed mm -hmm. to disrupt things. You're supposed to have competition. So when you look at the industries as they are now, just like they did with AT&T, but much more sophisticated now, you can make it easier to get the data, to look at the industries, and to start these investigations and potentially break them up. But there's other things you can do as well. So mm -hmm. that's, I think these are highly successful companies. Employ a bunch of people, that's great. But that doesn't mean that they can't keep going without a little competition. And if you buy out WhatsApp and Instagram, how are you ever going to get the bells and whistles for privacy and misinformation through the capitalist system if they buy everything in sight and there's no one to compete with them for stuff that people want? Mm -hmm. That's the idea. And that's why we need to change the antitrust laws and stop calling it antitrust and call mm -hmm. it competition policy. That sounds like a good rebrand. So you've been working on some incredibly important issues in the Senate, but one of the most impressive feats you've accomplished so far in 2021 is emceeing President Biden's inauguration. We knew you could work a crowd. We saw you in the debates, but we had no idea you were like Johnny Carson good. So oh, that if you dates don't- you. Uh, well, I mean, I was a child when it- Okay, all right. Yes, 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 of course, yes. yes, yes. Uh, he, was the, he was the best one. Um, if you don't end up on the Supreme Court, which we're personally trying to manifest for you, um, could you see yourself as a late night host? Because we can. 
Well, I think the best thing, as I said, uh, Senator Schumer was asking me afterward because everything and a lot of this was a tribute as well to Senator Blunt. We worked on this together and he really wanted to make this inauguration work. And after the insurrection at the Capitol, we literally took a stand that we and as well as the President Biden that we're not going to back down. We're not going to go inside and have this inauguration in a bunker, which a bunch of people, by the way, wanted us to do. We're going to reclaim that platform at the very place where the spray paint was still, you could see it, at the bottom of the columns where we were standing, at the same place where we had makeshift windows because the people who are trying to undermine our democracy deliberately picked that place because they knew that's where the inauguration was, and we were going to reclaim it. So for me, this was the moment, as I said that day, under that beautiful blue sky with a little minister so does snow when I walked in, um, uh, is that this is a moment where we are going to pick ourselves up and dust off our democracy and move forward as we always do, one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. And that was an amazing moment. I literally felt, as did everyone there, this sense of liberation, the fact that President Bush, former President Bush was there along with uh, former President Obama and Clinton, the fact that uh, Vice President Pence was there along with the number of Supreme Court justices, everyone knew what their job was today. And that was to take back our country. And in addition to that, so Schumer says, well, did anything go wrong? I'm like, yeah, one thing went really wrong. And he goes, what? I go, well, when I got there, Lady Gaga and I were wearing the same dress. And then I had to, <laughs> I had to change. No, not really. And then oh, meeting Amanda uh, Gorman and Lady Gaga um, was an amazing part of the day as well. She, Amanda Gorman, that was I mean, that was like spiritual, uh, magical uh, when she took the stage with that poem. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know how many times the inauguration has ended with a poem, because sometimes you're like, <laughs> but it really is something that I don't think people will ever forget who watched it for the rest of their lives. Well, Senator Klobuchar, thank you so much for your time. And also on behalf of Twins fans everywhere, I would like to, I, I wish the Minnesota Twins a great season this year. Oh, I, that's nice. <laughs> Thank yeah, you. I, w- I will be cheering for them. I've been ever since I was a child. I was yeah. at the 91 well, I was World there when Series they won uh, one of the World Series. So that was, but okay, it was a while ago. But uh, Was it 91 was, or 87? Uh, I was there in the 87. Uh, yeah. Thunderdome, the old yeah. Metrodome. Yeah, and uh, there, if you remember, well, I wrote a book on the building of the Metrodome. It was my college <laughs> senior essay. And I love that. I That's maybe the most Minnesotan thing I've antitrust. But yeah, so I, <laughs> I, I did, I did that. Yes, and so I was there. And what was funny about the Metrodome, of course, Billy Martin, the former general manager of the Yankees, called it the most abominable park in baseball. But that's because they lost in it. But because the balls, it was kind of hard to see them sometimes because because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. of the white ceiling. And they always said you couldn't wear a pointed hat at the top of the thing because it might go through. But anyway, it it. Uh, might have been a hometown advantage because we seem to have won both World Series when we had the hometown <laughs> advantage. <laughs> Look, we'll get it back. We'll get All it right. back at Target Field. I believe we can. Um, Senator, thank you so much. Okay. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thanks, Senator. Bye. Bye. We'll be right back. And after the break, our interview with Representative Lauren Underwood. This episode is brought to you by IQ Bar. Power up your life with superior brain and body nutrition products from IQ Bar. Their plant protein bars are the perfect low-carb breakfast. Their IQ Mix Zero Sugar Hydration Drinks replenish electrolytes. And their IQ Joe Mushroom Coffees will keep you focused all day long. 
Start each day right with IQ Bar's brain and body boosting bars, hydration mixes, and mushroom coffees. Their ultimate sampler pack includes all three. IQ Bar empowers doers with superior brain and body nutrition. All their products are entirely free from gluten, dairy, soy, GMOs, and artificial sweeteners. And today, Hysteria listeners get an exclusive offer of 20% off plus free shipping. Just text HYSTERIA to 64000. One thing I love about IQ Bar is, first of all, right now it's really dry where I am. Oh, okay. It is hard for me to stay hydrated. I just like I, I'll just be going through my day and I'll be like, why am I so like parched? I'm parched. I'm in a bad mood. I feel like I'm gonna pass out. And it's ah, you gotta drink some water. You gotta stay hydrated. I really like their IQ Mix Zero Sugar Hydration Drinks because it allows me to rehydrate myself at a time yeah. when I feel like the atmosphere is trying to take all my moisture away. Well, and sometimes you need more than just water. Sometimes you need more more than just water. I also love IQ bars because I love a portable breakfast. I love a grab-and-go breakfast. No dishes. Love something I can walk around holding and eating. I like something I can eat in my car without endangering the lives of me and every other motorist on the road. A breakfast burrito. <laughs> not, not the safest thing to eat behind the wheel. IQ bar, go ahead and do it. Good for you. Great ingredients. Helps you... Stay focused and alert throughout the day, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, and you don't have to dirty any dishes. Refuel smarter with IQ Bar's Ultimate Sampler Pack. That's seven IQ Bars, four IQ Mix sticks, and four IQ Joe sticks. And now our special podcast listeners get 20% off all IQ Bar products plus get free shipping. To get your 20% off, just text Hysteria to 64000. Get your discount, text Hysteria to 64000. That's H-Y-S-T-E-R-I-A to 64000. Message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. And welcome back. Today, we are so excited to have Congresswoman Lauren Underwood on Hysteria. She currently represents Illinois' 14th Congressional District. She's a registered nurse and formerly served as senior advisor at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. She is the first millennial to represent her district. Yay, millennials. And the youngest African-American woman ever to serve in the House of Representatives. Welcome, Lauren Underwood. Well, thank you. I'm so excited to be with you today. Um, So let's just get right down to it. Uh, a few weeks ago, Congress passed the American Rescue Plan, which was a very significant piece of progressive legislation, as well as a huge win for Democrats. So something very exciting that our listeners might not know is that you played an instrumental role in a key part of the bill. Your original legislation, the Health Care Affordability Act, was incorporated as part of the final bill. So firstly, congrats. That's awesome. Secondly, can hey. you tell <laughs> Secondly, can you tell us about this act, what it does? who it helps, and how long have you been working to get it passed? Yes. So early in my first term in 2019, I introduced this legislation called the Health Care Affordability Act after hearing from my constituents over and over and over about the high cost of health care and how it was really out of reach. I found that a lot of people uh, describe this in terms of the high cost of prescription drugs, uh, but we also know that for many families, the first health care dollar that they're spending every month is the premium price, the cost of having coverage, the the price they pay to keep that insurance card in their wallet. And it had just risen beyond what they could afford. And so that's resulted in people being able to, you know, not being able to see a provider or get a procedure or afford their prescriptions 
prescription drugs. And so we knew that if we were able to get that premium price under control, that would free up some budget space for families to then um, be able to spend on other healthcare issues if they wanted to. Um, and so what the legislation does is it's, it corrects or changes something within the original Affordable Care Act. There was a, a provision in the ACA that allowed um, most Americans to get access to a tax credit that would reduce the monthly uh, price that they paid for premiums for plans on the marketplace. Um, and so that, that tax credit would be paid in advance. So every month you would just pay a lower price. Well, for some people, if they worked an extra overtime shift or if they're usually working days and they worked one night shift or one weekend shift, it would bump their income above that magic threshold to be able to afford that tax credit. And so now they were having to pay sticker price for these premiums, for these plans. And it was just so costly and so burdensome. What we've done is we've said, get rid of an income threshold that's tied to a specific number. And the legislation says that no American would pay more than eight and a half percent of their income on premiums. This is important because in my community, families have been paying up to 25% of their income on premiums. So this, we're talking about savings of thousands of dollars per month for some people. Um, and we've been working on this. It passed out of the House last summer. Um, but obviously, Mitch McConnell, being Mitch McConnell, didn't take it up in the Senate. And so we brought the bill back early this term, and President Biden believed in it. And it was included in the American Rescue Plan for two years, which is so powerful. So now we have open enrollment, which means that if you are uninsured, if you have coverage, but it's not affordable, or you're just looking at your options, you can go on healthcare.gov right now. And you can check out the plans that are available to you and check out the pricing, um, knowing that you have the option for this lower cost coverage. And these are for silver level plans. These are good, good coverage. These are not like the high deductible plans that, you know, people don't want. This is the good stuff. Um, and hopefully it makes a big difference. We're expecting to see many fewer uninsured Americans, um, especially in a pandemic. It's important that people have health care. Absolutely. And talking about healthcare, before your career in Congress, you were a nurse turned health policy expert. Can you talk a little bit about how your medical background has informed your journey and your political priorities? Well, um, you know, I am so proud to be a nurse. And uh, there's actually three nurses in Congress. Um, and we're all Black women. And, you know, it's been fun to work with my colleagues uh, in the House on these issues that are so important, right? How do we protect the health and well-being of the American people uh, and break down barriers uh, for them to get the coverage that they need to live healthy, well lives? My work as a nurse has really informed my belief that healthcare is a human right. And that belief has been foundational to literally everything that I've been doing throughout my career, um, trying to increase access to quality, affordable healthcare. Okay, so your district is overwhelmingly white and very suburban. Trump won by four points in 2016, Biden by two points in 2020. How did you win over a politically mercurial voting group? In your experience, what are the issues that connect you most with your constituents, especially those who may have voted for Trump at one point? Yes. So this has been uh, such an interesting opportunity to uh, talk to people. You know, what we found in my first campaign was there were so many communities across this district. I'm talking about the ones that are the brightest red on the map, where oftentimes 
Democrats just wouldn't show up. So we would be out knocking doors and introducing myself. Hi, I'm Lauren. I'm running for Congress. I'm a Democrat. And they're like, really? (laughs) (laughs) And farmers told us that no Democrat had knocked on their door in 10 years. And so, you know, it's no surprise. And I mean, no Democrat at any level. There's no precinct committee person. There's nobody running for county board, nobody running for state rep, nobody running for like mayor or city council from our party. And so it's no surprise that they were only supporting conservative Republicans if we were not showing up. So what did my campaign do? Well, we knocked on their door. They invited us in. We'd sit down in their living rooms and we'd talk and we'd have the opportunity to have these important conversations on the issues that were most important to them. And what we learned was, for example, in the 2018 cycle, the farmer's number one issue was healthcare. But guess what? The Farm Bureau's number one issue was trade. And so, so often, you know, people running for office would skip over talking to the individuals and they just go straight to the advocacy organization and talk about the advocacy organization's core issue and miss the opportunity to connect with their neighbor, to connect with their voter on the core issue that mattered to them. I show up, I'm a nurse. I had worked on the Affordable Care Act. You know, I have a pre-existing condition. I could relate to so many of the challenges that they were they were experiencing, and we had an opportunity to earn their support. And so as a result, in that 2018 election, I won every county, including communities that went overwhelmingly for Trump. Now, 2020 was a little bit different in that Trump was on the ballot, um, but we still won the election, right? And so, you know, I think that my commitment to my community is always to listen and to bring their voices to Washington. This is not about some kind of like allegiance to one party or one ideology. This is about representing them and making sure that they know that um, someone has their back and is showing up for them. And, um, you know, it's been great fun to show up to small towns and, you know, check in on all of our friends, even during COVID. And, you know, make sure that, you know, they're getting what they need. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So much seems to be accomplished by people who are willing to show up. (laughs) It's, it's, uh, it's, it's really incredible. Um, it seems so simple, but so few people do it. And it's, it's really cool to hear uh, how successful you've been at that. Um, something I was, something I was unaware of before, uh, up until we did some research is that your 2020 Republican opponent, Jim Overweiss is still fighting the results of the election. He actually showed up to, he showed up to Congress to freshman orientation, like a, someone showing up to their ex's wedding in a white dress. Um, (laughs) now (laughs) is this a delusion that only a man could carry out? And how do you handle a situation like that? You know, it's really disappointing um, that this Trump mindset of, you know, not acknowledging defeat has really bled into a local race like ours, Mm -hmm. a down ballot race like ours. You know, and it's so damaging long term to our democracy. Um, One of the early, early, early lessons that I learned in youth sports in Naperville, Illinois, where I live right now, is how to say good game after a match when you lost. I played basketball with the YMCA. And if we lost the game, you went down the line to your opponents and you said, good game. And it's just so disappointing that my opponent in this race is not willing to do that. Here, listen, it took about 10 days for um, our race to be called in November after the election. He wasn't satisfied with that outcome. So he immediately requested a recount. Took about two months for that recount to to be completed in some communities. And he didn't even wait for every county to complete their recounts. He just 
was dissatisfied and decided um, to file a motion to contest the election in the Congress. And so now we are battling um, to be able to complete my term and it may result in a floor vote at the House of Representatives. And like, here's the thing, I won by over 5,000 votes. There were over 400,000 votes cast in this election and we were certified by the state of Illinois as the winner. It is very clear that we won and it's just really sad. And he is trying to undermine the will of the voters and Illinoisans should know that. And um, we will be victorious. Mm -hmm. Gosh, that is annoying. Well, we are victorious. I will yeah. say we will be victorious in this challenge. I mean, what? <laughs> that is so much just wasted energy. Just something, it's just, yeah. just, a, just a complete lost cause. I am so sorry that you're going through that, but I'm glad that you seem confident that everything's going to turn out okay. It's just an annoying thing. Um, so we like to close on a light note. Um, Okay. So you're from Illinois, a state a state that I have a soft spot for. What is your favorite thing as a native of Naperville? What's your favorite thing about Illinois? And what's a hidden gem that you would show a visitor to your state? Okay. Well, my favorite thing are the people. Um, folks here are like so nice. Um, and one of like the, my favorite things to do is just like to go to one of our super targets, um, and get a nice parking spot right up on the store because that's accessible to us. And then you walk through the store and you just chat with people in the target and people are, you know, so friendly and nice. And, you know, you just, I just ask them, you know, what's going on with their lives or whatever. And this is sort of how I like check in with the community as well. But, um, People are kind and generous and thoughtful and they care about their neighbors and um, have a real sense of a community spirit, which I think is beautiful. Um, and it's my honor to be their voice in Congress. Now, what do I like to show people when they come to visit? I like to take them to eat. <laughs> and one of the, my favorite places to go is this pizza place called Lou Malnati. <gasps> oh, yeah, of course. Heard. Oh, yes. Yes, of course. Yes. Okay, great. So there's a shared love and affinity for Lou Malnati's here. It, for those who have not been initiated yet, it is not like the deep dish pizza that you might have gotten from like Uno's or like the frozen section that says like Chicago style pizza. It is much better, but the sauce is still on top. It is delicious. I will go to Lumanati's any day of the week with anybody who wants to come to the Chicago suburbs. And then after you have your pizza fix, we got to go straight to Port oh, yes. for the cheese fries. Yes, right? Um, and if you want to do a double dose of meat gluttony, you could get um, all kinds of um, Chicago-style treats. Um, from Portillo's. When, Portillo well. oh when I lived gosh, in Chicago, there was a Portillo's two blocks away, and it was responsible for a, an extra pant size. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, absolutely. So good. <laughs> when I lived in Chicago, there was like a hearty Lou Malnati's versus Giordano's war, and I was always on team Lou Malnati's. <laughs> I just think the sauce tastes better. The sauce tastes better. It's the, the sauce so, the does sauce taste better. That's better. exactly true. Um, oh my gosh. I'm so, I've been hungry since you we have. started recording Representative Underwood and now I am hungrier. Uh, I really want, I really want like a pile of meat on some bread from Portillo's. Um, Congresswoman Lauren Underwood, thank you so much for joining us. This was, this was a thank lot of you. fun. Thank you so much. Take care. Take good care of yourself. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. 
As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. And welcome back. We've reached what I privately refer to as the fun part of the show. Alyssa, do you call it the fun part of the show? I guess I do to now. Yourself? <laughs> I, I mean, it's fun to talk to with just me and you, but then it's like the more the merrier and we bring more people You know in. I feel that way. <laughs> okay, well, we're at the fun part. And I want to bring in the two wonderful women we have joining us today to talk about the fun thing we're about to talk about, the kind of fun thing we're about to talk about. First, I want to start with our in-house fam. She is a best-selling author who every time I turn around has a new book coming out. She has another one coming. Did you title it yet? I did find the title for my new book. Uh, I know last time we said we were going to have a title, but now I have it. Should I should I tell you guys what it is? I'm very excited. Yes, yeah. please okay. tell us. So the title that we have finally settled on is You Sound Like a White Girl, The Case for Rejecting Assimilation. Ooh. Ooh. That's the title. I love I would, it. I'm very excited about it. I would be really yeah. excited to see that on a syllabus for a class. I'd be like, oh. Yeah, yeah I agree. <laughs> Here it comes. You you guys, <laughs> you all know her voice, but this is Julissa Arce. She is joining us today. And uh, oh my gosh, that is a great title. I cannot wait to, I wish I could write a subway and read it so that people would see me reading that title on the subway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm really excited about it. Finally settled on. I mean, the book won't come out till. March 2022, but we have a title, so it feels more real. Writing books takes longer than gestating a human being. It is <laughs> unbelievable how long that process takes. Um, right? I feel like I should have a baby shower for my book. I'll come. I'll bring it a cute. Awesome. I'll bring it a cute little onesie in size three, <laughs> in size three months, so it definitely fits. Okay, I'll send to save the date. Awesome. Okay, can't wait for that. Uh, also joining us today is author and journalist and Alicia Menendez. She's an MSNBC commentator and co-host of her own podcast, Latina to Latina. Her 2019 book, The Likeability Trap, How to Break Free and Succeed as You Are, is the inspiration for today's topic. She's also the host of MSNBC's American Voices with Alicia Menendez, Saturday and Sunday nights at 6 p.m. Eastern. Not busy at all. Welcome, Alicia. <laughs> Hi, old friends. This is so fun. <laughs> I know it's it's been how long how far back do we go? I feel like seven or eight years. It's a long time. It's long enough that I think when we met, you were telling me you didn't want to get married and have kids and look at where you are. And... <laughs> <laughs> oh well, you know, Youth. new information has come to light. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Although I think of you, you tweeted something out once about um, how like sometimes you think you want kids, but then you also love going to the bathroom by yourself. And since I have yes. two little kids, every time like, I'm trying to go to the bathroom and someone's just sitting there looking at me, I'm like, maybe Aaron's onto something. <laughs> I, I feel like all of my female friends who have kids are like, you never poop alone. Never. For like, ever again. For like five <laughs> husbands in there. But Aaron, you have a cat. Does your cat let you go to the bathroom in peace? Because my cat does not. Like as soon as I close the door, he's like scratching at the door. <laughs> Jumps on my lap. <laughs> oh my yeah. God. No, Eleanor leaves me alone when I'm in the bathroom, but that's the only time she leaves me alone. Like the only, she sleeps on my pillow with my head 
Like she's <laughs> she's out of hand. She has no no sense of boundaries. Um, okay, so I want to get started on this topic today because I I could talk about my cat for like hours, but uh, I'm not gonna do that because I think I would get in trouble with crooked media. Um, I want to talk about the question of likability. Like, what is it? Um, how hard are we working for it? How unfair is it? And are there some people who actually should be trying harder to be more likable? Um, I, <laughs> cause the answer to that is yes. And we will get to that in a little bit. Um, but I, Alicia, I want to start with you since you wrote a book on this topic. Um, what is the likability trap as you define it? So I'm a person who cares a lot about being well-liked. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that. I am a cancer. I am a crier, I'm a sensitive person, and I'm Latina. And so culturally, in addition to the fact that across cultures, we socialize girls to care about what other people think of them, to think of themselves in relation to others. I definitely grew up in a house and in a community where it was made really clear to me that I never just represented myself, that I represent my family, I represent my community, and judgments that are made about me are then transferred onto other people. And I know that sounds really heavy, but it is. And so I have carried that with me into adulthood and into my 30s. I was all of a sudden starting to realize how much that was costing me and just wanting to shed it. And I originally imagined writing a book that was like the eat, pray, love for likability, where I, as a person who cares a lot, would learn to let go and care a lot less. And what I learned as I started interviewing other women for the project was that even the women who don't give a damn about being well-liked, who aren't governed by likability, they too pay a price. While the price that I pay is very internal, the price that they pay is very externalized. There's this sense that they really should care and they're penalized for not caring. That's particularly true if that woman is ambitious and it's particularly true if she works in a male-dominated environment or industry. And so that core question became much more interesting to me, right? Why do we demand of women that we should care? Knowing that it sets up a number of traps for them. It sets up this trap that they can either be perceived as warm and likable or they can be perceived as competent. They can either be perceived as a lady or they can be perceived as a leader, but there's almost no way to be a likable lady leader. Um, there's the success likability penalty, which, you know, you've either watched Sheryl Sandberg's TED Talk or you've skimmed her book. I once got in a long, like 45 minute argument with a friend about Lean In, at which point I was like, did you actually read Lean In? And she was like, no, I'm like, well, you have very strong opinions about it for someone who never read it. <laughs> But, you know, she brought to light this idea that the more successful a woman becomes, the less other people like her just because. Because we're so unaccustomed to seeing successful women that when we do, we think, wow, there must be something wrong with her that she was able to become that successful. She must have done something nefarious in order to become that successful. And then there's this idea that right now, especially, I think it's come out of Silicon Valley, this idea of authentic leadership, of like showing up as you are. And one, I am not sure we want everyone coming to work as their full unfiltered selves. I think that's like a joke, but I also think that that, you know, Julissa, I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Like, I think that is really only feels safe for people who are assumed to be competent and powerful, meaning it's really only meant for cis, straight, white men, right? That it's like, you do you, you show up in your entirety, but for the rest of us, it always feels 
like there's a little bit of a gamble. Like we could be rocking the boat. One thing I heard from a lot of women of color is that by identifying problems at work, they often became the problem at work. And so to me, it's like, it's not just this one-time choice. Do I want to be successful or do I want to be likable? It is all these micro choices that women are making from the beginning of their career to the end of their career, sometimes multiple times in a day. How hard do I want to push back on this? How much of a fuss do I want to make about this? I've been negotiating on this contract for two weeks now. If I push any harder or any further, is that going to ding me in the long term, right? That like when someone brings up my name, they're gonna be like, yeah, she's smart. She's great. But like, you don't want to work with her. She's a pain in the ass. Um, and that I think that's really real. Like, I think Instagram has sort of made us believe like, do you and don't care who, what they think about it. But it's like, no, like those, those penalties and those traps are out there. It's just a question of whether or not we're willing to be honest about them. Right. And that do you and don't care what anyone thinks about you is always accompanied by a very flattering photo of the person who wants you to not care. Like, oh, okay. You want us to not care and also want us to notice that you don't have any pores on your face. Uh, yeah, I noticed you're not, you not, you don't care enough that you're really showing off your bone structure right now. Julissa, you brought this up, like social media playing a role in uh, falling into this kind of likability chase. I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. So um, a couple of things I was thinking about how, you know, because I don't have a boss anymore. Like I, you know, when I worked on Wall Street, uh, a lot of what uh, Alicia was saying about um, not being able to be your full self because it has real consequences, right? Um, and so I just thought, okay, now I don't have a boss. I don't have colleagues. I don't have coworkers. Like I'm my own boss and I can be myself and I don't have to worry about uh, all of the things I worried about before. And what's funny now with Instagram is that I feel like my followers in some ways can have become my boss, mm -hmm. you know, like it's all this, it's all these thousands of people that I've never met in my entire life. But what one of them sends me a message, uh, about something they didn't like or something I got wrong, like it really, it really bothers me. And I wish that it didn't. I wish that I didn't care what they said or what they thought. Um, but I think it's because I care so much about the community that I serve that when I feel like I'm failing them, I just feel like the stakes are even higher than when I was displeasing my boss on Wall Street. You know, it's become so much more. And then at the same time, I try to remind myself that these are people I do not know in real life. These are people that also do not know my life in real life, right? So one very, very quick example. I, uh, you know, I've talked about how I recently bought a house uh, with my husband. Which, congrats. And, uh, oh my gosh, that's so awesome. Thank you very much. It's my new display behind <laughs> me. Um, and then the the day before we we're supposed to move, my cat got like super sick, went into heart failure and the bill was like $7,000, right? And I just felt so overwhelmed that I created a GoFundMe and I felt really embarrassed by asking people for money uh, because I'm supposed to be this like successful person that people parade around as like a successful immigrant who made a ton of money on Wall Street. And like all those things are true. But I also just felt super overwhelmed. And everybody, you know, most like tons of people gave. Thank you to everybody who gave $10, $5. They were like, thank you so much for allowing us to help you. And I was like, oh, my God, I did the right thing. One person, one person sent me this message that said that I was so out of touch, that it was so disingenuous, that I had just bought a house. And how dare I 
post about buying a house when I serve undocumented people and how dare I ask for money when I just bought a house. And I tell you, I I lost days of sleep over that one comment. I'm like, this person does not know my life. They do not know everything else that is going on behind the scenes. And so I try to, I try to remind myself so much that as much as I love this community, they are still people that I do not know in real life. And, and some people are not going to like me and I'm not going to be everybody, everybody's cup of tea. So, you know, now I have discovered the power of mute, of the mute button. <laughs> I did too. Um, and the restrict button on Instagram. Um, so they don't have to know that, you know, I no longer see their comments or that nobody else sees their comments. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's it's uh, it's been a huge discovery and, and it's a battle. It's a constant battle. I think I think about likability and Alicia, I did read the book. Here it is. Um, is that it's a constant struggle. You know, it's not like one day you wake up and you have all the answers and for the rest of your life you have the answers and for the rest of your life you don't care. Um, it's a constant thing for me, at least it's a constant thing to remind myself. Is this really important? Is it not? Can I be myself? Or is it okay to sometimes compartmentalize mm-hmm. parts mm-hmm. of myself? Yeah, you know, it's funny because like my thought was like, she just bought a house and now her cat's sick. Of course she needs help with money. She just bought a house. Houses are very expensive. Um, yeah, but you know, it's yeah. it's funny. We're talking about likability here. Um, I would really like to drill down what exactly that means. Alyssa, I feel like since you've been in a position where you've been like overseeing a lot of people and also been looked to by a lot of people, what is your sense of what it means to be likable as a woman versus unlikable as a woman? And I'm and I'm saying this not I'm not asking your personal opinion about what makes somebody unlikable, but what makes someone viewed as likable or unlikable? Someone is likable if they get you the answer you want. It may not be the right answer. It's the it's the answer you want quickly, efficiently, with a smile, uh, with no complaining, with no uh, let's see what else, with no uh, no personal opinion. <laughs> Just you know, it is to me that is the uh, one of the worst experiences I ever had because I don't know I'm a little bit like Janet from another planet it's like I just kind of I was very lucky and easy to get along with people in my first couple of jobs and and then I started working for Barack Obama who is uh, very easy to get along with but the campaign started with all these new people and one person and also let's just be clear I push back hard when I fucking know I'm right like like I am very open to conversation but when I know I'm right it's it's you know it's like a it's empirical you know it's like I'm not it's not my opinion I know that it's the right thing <laughs> and I put it forward and uh this person who was older than I was but I had done more presidential campaigns than he had was like you know you've really got to be careful because if you keep doing what you just did, people are going to think you're a bitch and they're not going to want to work with you. Mm. And I was like, what? And the best part is, guys, wait, Alyssa, I bet he thought legitimately he was being helpful. Oh, yeah. He was giving me good fucking advice. <laughs> it was like for my long term success. You know, I went into the bathroom and I just cried and cried. And I was gone so long that my deputy came to find me. And you know why she came to find me? Because I hadn't gone home in two days because I had been working so hard. And someone dropped off a clean shirt for me and she brought me a clean shirt in the bathroom. And like, but after that, that one comment, the 
the senator from Illinois, Barack Obama, could tell me a hundred times over that I was invaluable. And that was like in one ear and out the other because all I remembered was that one dude's comment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like the, yeah. the negative comments about us being unlikable feel stickier than the ones about us doing good jobs sometimes. Which It is. And you know the one thing, too, that a lot of this also, there's like a common thread, is like the benefit of the doubt. You know, like like the fact that when someone says something, I always kind of give them the benefit of the doubt. I was like, all right, well, let's think about that for a minute before I'm like, you're a bitch and no one's ever going to want to work with you again. But whether it's comments like that comment, Julissa, that you got on Instagram, it's like, why wouldn't that person give you the benefit of the doubt? Like, and I right. feel like men get the fucking benefit of the doubt all the time. They must have had a good reason for acting the way they did. And for us, it's like, you have to work doubly hard because you don't even get the benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you how to be really yeah. likable, though. You're me where you like have never met Alyssa Mastromonaco. And then your publisher comes to you and says, you need to find big names on the back of this book to endorse it. And you send a cold email to a person you've never met. And that person, Alyssa Mastromonaco, writes back in like five minutes and says, yeah, I got you just here's my address send it to me so Alyssa thank you so much for showing up for me at a moment when because it wasn't just that you said yes is that you said yes so effusively because there were a lot of people who said no and that really hurt my feelings because it because that's the thing people are busy like that's the other thing is like sometimes on the on the flip side of this conversation it has nothing to do with you right like sometimes it's just like I sometimes it is true it's not you it's me I mean I I've been that person during this pandemic where I'm like I'm sorry I ignored your email three times I'm literally under a pile of children and clothes and work that I will not be able to dig myself out from for like a year (laughs) but also Alicia the book when I got it and I read it I was like I wish that I had had this so many years ago because you think it's you you know what Mm -hmm. I mean you think it's like everybody else pleases people easily and I'm working really hard at it and I feel really like I'm failing when I haven't and it's not it's it's pretty pervasive yeah and I think even what I'm sorry what Julissa shared there is also really common and is a thing that people are embarrassed to articulate to say Mm -hmm. that I that yeah I'm trying to show up as my full self on social media but like I notice you Erin like you're a very irreverent person so around your wedding I watched you struggle with how to share those pictures (laughs) and caption them (laughs) in a way that both felt authentic to you which was not schmaltzy but also you know, you were happy and you wanted to share yeah. that happiness. And it's like, how I didn't you get f- married like as a joke. I got married for real. <laughs> like, Yeah. I mean, that's I think that's really, really a good point. Another thing um, that that just listening to everybody and, and their their input here, I feel like we are kind of raised to view every interaction that we have as like the result of it. We're supposed to think, OK, did they like me? Did they not like me? Like mm-hmm. after every single interaction, we're supposed to question it. And the reality is, like Julissa implied, you know, a lot of times things don't really have anything to do with you. Like most of the way other people treat you is all about what's going on in their own lives. Not, It's not about whether or not they like you. And, you know, I was just thinking about uh, that famous uh, Amy Poehler quote from when she was in the SNL writer's room and she was making some like potty humor jokes. And there was another male writer in the room who was like, I, I don't like it when you do that. And she goes, I don't care if you like it. And and then I was thinking about the Tina Fey, Amy Poehler thing about, you know what? Bitches get shit done. We're bitches. Yeah, she's a bitch. I'm a bitch. I was wondering, you know, if we have reached a, an almost bitch tipping point where uh, it's <laughs> it's more okay than it's ever been before for a woman to exhibit bitch-like qualities. I mean, bitch-like, pushy, aggressive 
uh, assertive, no time to hem and haw. I don't mean bitch like the way that John Cornyn is a bitch. Um, <laughs> I, I mean it. I mean it like like assertive. Um, I don't know, Julissa. Have you noticed a change in what's acceptable? In, a, in terms of like pushiness among women? Yeah. Uh, first of all, I have to uh, remember that um, bitch, the tipping point. What was that? The bitch tip. Because that's going to be my next the book The bitch title. tipping point. <laughs> <laughs> Just let, let me blurb it. Let me blurb it. This is an environment of, of support. I will add a blurb to the bitch tipping point. That was sure. amazing. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, one of the things about uh, Alicia's book uh, that really struck with me was this idea that, you know, well, Alicia, when you started writing this book, you thought, how do I care less, right? How do I uh, care less about being likable? But then realizing that it's actually this like structural systems that uh, sort of make it impossible for women to get out of these traps of, okay, I'm likable, but then I'm being viewed as a pushover or Aaron, to your point, like now I can show up as being more assertive, uh, but still being viewed as aggressive and particularly uh, as a woman of color it when I show up as as an assertive person, I am often viewed as uh, threatening, that's right. right? And if you're a black woman, that's even that's even more the case that uh, you really can't show up to be more assertive. But I do think that the shift is happening not so not so much in the systems that are in place, but that we as women are realizing that uh, that we have to. Uh, for our own selves, for uh, for our careers, for our desires, for our goals, for our ambitions to be more assertive and to show up those quote unquote bitch qualities, you know, because I think we're starting to recognize that if we want to get things done, we can't just sit in the background and expect those things to happen, right? That we have to like take charge of our own lives if we want to make those happen. And, you know, I think that for me, at least, like I try to be very conscious of this. Well, what is the price I might pay for this? Mm-hmm. Right? What is the consequence of this? And then sort of weighing the consequences versus the reward. Mm-hmm. And and sometimes the reward is just my ears can stop being pinned to my shoulders. Mm-hmm. Right? Sometimes the reward is my back isn't going to go out because I have held all of this in. Mm-hmm. Right? Sometimes and sometimes the reward is that, and that's a reward big enough for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting way to put it. Um because the the consequence of actually stepping up and and pressing against that likability expectation is something that I don't think men have to worry about. Like, you know, we're told over and over again like go negotiate, girl, like you ask for what you're worth and it's like, yeah, sometimes that backfires. Like the reason there's a reason that a lot of us are scared of that because we all have that one anecdotal story of somebody who tried you know you you might have 99 stories of someone negotiating and everything was fine and nobody made a big deal but that one anecdotal story of somebody negotiating and having like a job offer rescinded is like enough to like scare me off doing you know pushback stuff you know Alyssa you and I have talked about this before. I will say, sorry, I say, and it's just one quick thing. Yeah. I will say one thing. Um, I, I never have a problem asking for money, uh, in, in terms of like asking for more money or asking for what I'm worth or asking for a raise or asking, um, you know, to be paid for things that I feel like I should be paid for. To your point though, there's probably places that I no longer get work from because they probably think I'm always asking for more money, but that's okay because there are other places that are going to be willing to say, yes, we're going to pay you what mm-hmm. 
you know, you think you're worth. Totally. I think that it just it makes it a little the stakes are a little higher when you don't have as like broad a base of places that you can mm-hmm. go to. Like if you're just getting started out, if you're somebody who Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a lot more daunting, I think. Um I, so I wanted to talk about like things that we have done to try to be more likable. Um for the better or for the worst. Alyssa can you think of something that sticks out to you as something that was particularly ill-advised that you did to try to make people like you more? You guys, I hate to tell you this. I'm like very likable. <laughs> just kidding. Just I kidding. mean, it, you are no. America's soulmate. America's soulmate is a nickname I gave you and we've, made, we've made merch out of it. That's how much people agree. Is there is no, merch? You know what it is? I am just, uh, I will say that in the years when you sort of professionally are becoming who you are and really in the workforce, I was in the political equivalent of like romper room. And I mean that in the best way. Like it was like, say how you feel. You know, it's like if I started to say something and someone talked over me, like Barack Obama just didn't let it happen. And when you see that happening, you then get more comfortable being like, no, you're not going to talk over me and my idea matters. But no, um, at one point when, um, you know, Barack Obama likes sports. And at one point I was like, should I try to like sports too so that everyone includes me in the conversation? (laughs) And there was actually a woman that I knew that did this and I found her repellent. But I was like, you know what? I'm going to try it. But then I decided instead of talking about, so we're actually on Marine One. Everyone's talking about sports. And you know, sometimes the military guys, they'd look at me because I was like being quiet because I didn't have much to add. And I was like, did you guys see the triple Lutz was in the ice skating? And I just decided that I too could participate in sports, but in my own way, I was going to talk about gymnastics, swimming, all of the good Olympic sports, basically. <laughs> but my thing in being likable, I guess, or fitting in was always a little bit more about the way I looked. Um, because I felt like people who fit in and who got respect, like dressed a certain way. And that was really uncomfortable for me, actually. That was something that like, I'm not comfortable in suits. And, um, but when we were in the white house, I tried really, really hard. And there was a blog dedicated to critiquing how Nancy Ann, uh, who was the other Nancy Ann DePaul, who was the other white house deputy chief of staff, like what she and I wore and they would post pictures that Pete Ugh. Souza had and like send arrows about how like we were disrespecting the office. And I was, I, we go in for our senior advisor meeting one day and everyone's sitting there and I wear my fucking emotions all over my face. So I was like, sad Sally looking down at my notebook and Barack Obama were like leaving the office. He's like, Hey, uh, uh, what's going on? I was like, what do you mean? He's like, what's going on? You got to look on your face. <laughs> I was like, so here's the thing. Like, there's this blog. And, you know, we try so hard to represent you. And, you know, it's like you're the first black president. And we don't want people thinking you have shitty staff. And, like, they just, they're criticizing my shoes. And he's like, what are you even talking about? <laughs> and so I told him, I was like, there's this blog. And they said that I disrespect you in the office because I wear flat shoes and I don't wear high heels. He's like, why do you wear flat shoes? I'm like, because you're all gazelles and I can't keep up if I wear high heels. He's like, then what do you care what these stupid people on? What is it called? A blog? <laughs> like, what do you care what they think? I was like, okay. But so I was, that's a very long way of saying that I was lucky because the reinforcement from the person at the top was you be you. And mm-hmm. so now the problem is when I go other places and that's not the case, 
you know, I wouldn't exactly say that when I got to Vice Media, there was a lot of let Alyssa be Alyssa (laughs) up in there, (laughs) you know? And so for me, it's like, but now that he has given that to me, it's like, I just can't thrive in places where people are like, "Mm, can you just be you, but like 10% less or 15% different. Right. Like you would not thrive in an environment that didn't encourage random dancing to music only you can hear. Right? Exactly. Okay. One of of my favorite- I walk in- and they're just a bunch of narcs that hate weed, it's going to be a problem. (laughs) Uh, One of my favorite memories of Alyssa was at a sound check for a live show. And she was, I looked over at her and she was just dancing alone to music that was not playing anywhere except Alyssa's head. It was pretty funny. Um, Alicia, I wonder, since you're somebody who is like a, a, you know, admitted person who pursues being liked or has pursued being liked, what is something you look back on that you did that you're like, God, I tried really hard and it wasn't great. Yeah. I mean, my hands are sweating because my childhood is like a cornucopia of shame <laughs> memories around this. I remember. Like, so I, I guess it was like the 90s. Do you remember how, at least where I grew up, like putting your hair back with like depth gel in a bun was like the look for a while? And Were you in New Jersey? Jersey. Jersey. Yeah. Okay. I grew yeah. up in New, yes. New Jersey. And I remember this girl, Tate, she like came over and she whispered in my ear and she's like, Joel says you should wear your hair in a ponytail because it looks better in a ponytail than in a bun. <laughs> and I just like died. I died that people were looking at me. I died that people were talking about me. I, I like I, you know, I probably like missed a math class because I was thinking so much about all of this and like also what those things really meant and what they signaled. And then the way this has shown up for me more as an adult and at work and like that I've really had to grapple with is I want to be easy breezy. I want to be one of those people who's like, no, Mm -hmm. you just you do it the way you think is best. And then you bring it to me. And then the person brings it to me. I'm like, well, this is all wrong. And so it's like I'm attempting to be easy. And in my attempt to be easy, I actually end up being more difficult. Like I make everyone's life more difficult Hmm. by not being really clear about what I want, what I need, what my expectations are. Um, Because I could give that person some direction and then we would both actually start in a better place. And so I've had to learn how to break that pattern of like in my desire to make things easy, in my desire to be well liked, actually just making things much, much messier. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Julius, the same question for you. What's something that you've tried to do to be likable that you were like, that was not very good? I try to sound like a white girl. <laughs> when though? Was that, I mean, was that a gold medal or when was that? No, that was like immigrant 11-year-old Julissa would like stand in front of a mirror and and imagine a white girl speaking back to her and wanting to sound, uh, you know... Wanting to have the confidence that the white girls at my school had, mm-hmm. you know, ultimately that's what it was. It wasn't like this conscious, like, I want to sound like a white girl. Not when I was 11, I didn't know that, right? It's like only looking back on it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think all everything that I've done uh, up until I liberated my mind, really, uh, was you know, this whole idea of like assimilation, right? And like assimilating. Like I wanted to be this respectable immigrant. I wanted to speak English really well. And I wanted to get a really great college education. And I wanted to get this really great job and have a lot of money because I wanted this fucking country to love me. I wanted this country to like me and to know that I was worthy to be here, right? Um, those, that's more like the heavy big stuff, right? Of like, and I think that's I think that so many immigrants and people of color 
unconsciously or consciously do that. Like we're always trying to be or fit into this model uh, or this mold of what we think is acceptable. I was thinking about, uh, Alicia, something that you said in your book about um, whether companies, you know, oh, I just like this person, like hiring decisions come down to, oh, I just like this person and what inherent bias there is on there. And I was thinking about this Tokyo test. I don't I mean, I'm sure you guys have heard about it, like in, in interviews, or at least it was like a, maybe it was like a Wall Street thing where we would say, does this person pass the Tokyo test? And that test was, would I want to sit next to this person on a flight to Tokyo, right? Would I like sitting next to this person? And then what it comes down to, though, is like, who are these white men who, you know, golf every weekend, who uh, went to Ivy League schools, like who are they going to want to talk to on a flight to Tokyo? Probably not someone like me, you know, because I don't know anything about golf. I don't know anything about squash or, you know, sailing. Like those aren't my things. Um, But uh, Alisa, something that you said about liking sports, like I am fortunate that I did actually really did like sports, but that really was my way in to like a lot of these conversations and being liked. But it was something that I flaunted more, you know, mm. like every every Monday I would come in talking about the the Sunday football game or like college football, you know, or or basketball or like I would I would probably overdo it because I wanted I wanted to be in, mm-hmm. you know, I wanted to be in with the boys. And that was my way in. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really interesting, Julissa, that you bring up uh, assimilation. And I don't want to make a one to one comparison between like people trying to fit into the upper class and people trying to fit into a country that they're new to. But I do think that there's some commonalities between that. Um, For sure. I think one one thing that kind of struck a chord with me was like the way you spoke. And I never had to deal with a language barrier, but I did used to have an accent that was a little bit more pronounced, like a little bit, a little bit more Minnesotan, you know, like, uh, you know, kind of <laughs> more like that all for neat. Um, but <laughs> Like a thing that I did when I went to college, and I know that I did this, I must have done it, is that I like, like tried to turn off the weird words, the weird ways that I would say things that would like draw attention to me. Like I still can't say the word B-A-G-E-L without thinking about it because I like- A bagel? Bagel? Bagel. I, I can't. I have to like think, but you know, it's like learning how to say the right things. I I remember trying to learn about things that I absolutely didn't give a shit about, like, like pop culture wise, did not give a shit about like some things that I felt like I had to learn about in order to fit in. Um, But the dumbest thing I ever did, uh, the stupidest thing I ever did to try to fit in was when I was in college, which was a fragile time for my self-esteem. I got blonde highlights. (laughs) (laughs) which is so bad when you have hair that's very, very dark. It just like will, your hair will break. It is such a bad idea. Um, I got blonde highlights because I thought it would make me look like cooler. Uh, I also used to use a tanning bed because I thought it would make me like kind of, you know, it was the early 2000s. People were tanning. People smelled like (laughs) burned skin all the time. And it's just like, I look back on pictures of that and I'm like, I just see all of these like external signs of this desire to fit in with a group of people that I didn't even like. I didn't, (laughs) I didn't like the country club mafia type people that I went to college with. I 
didn't want to wear polo shirts and low slung chinos with belts that were pink and green with a little, (laughs) you know, I didn't like that stuff, but I felt like I should because I wanted those people to like me, even though I didn't really like them, Them. Uh, Mm -hmm. which I think is something that you, I think you grow out of. But it takes a little bit of effort. Um, it takes a little and, bit of effort. Uh, and I also think it it requires finding your people. Because once you find like this, yes. whatever this is for yourself, then you then you realize you'd rather spend your time surrounded by people who see you and get you and who you can show up with in a sweatshirt rather mm-hmm. than the people who are asking you to perform. Totally. And I would add to that that sometimes your people starts with yourself. Like you mm-hmm. figure out a way to be... Like, who am I? What do I like? I mean, it's like, I, Alyssa, I immediately thought of you and I thought of this. Uh, it's like in Runaway Bride when Julia Roberts is trying to figure out what kind of eggs she likes because she has no idea who she really is. Um, honestly, I mean, it's kind of like a half joke, but I do think it's important to like figure out what you actually like and what you actually don't like and be to- be okay with hanging out with yourself. Like before I met my husband, that was like the first point in my life where I was like truly okay with myself. And I think that that made me actually ready to meet somebody and love somebody because I was finally at peace and I was okay being alone. And I found myself likable for my own reasons. Um, so that that's little advice to the younger listeners, I guess. I don't know. Um, I mean, I'm constantly dumbfounded that people don't like me because <laughs> I think I'm like the coolest. I'm like, I like me. I love me. I'm fucking cool as shit. <laughs> I mean, get with the program, everybody. I agree. I can't disagree with that whatsoever. <laughs> Julissa is a goddamn delight. Although I will say, just a complete. I will say, you know, there is that one time where I wore I wore my pearl necklace on Tucker Carlson. What? And because I just wanted to be, you know, again this respectable immigrant. Like I wasn't showing up to Tucker Carlson wearing my big hoop earrings. You know, I still wanted to be like, and one of my friends actually called me out on it. They like found this picture from like three years ago because I no longer do Tucker Carlson. I learned, I've learned my lesson. Uh, But my friend called me out. They were like, look at Julissa with her little pearls on Tucker Carlson. Still, (laughs) I was like, oh my God, how do I scrub that from the internet (laughs) Well, the the proper thing to wear would have been pearls with a bow tie attached to them if you're going to go on Tucker Carlson. (laughs) Funnily enough, one place where unlikable women have really thrived in recent years is fiction. We love fake unlikable women. Uh, We love the fake unlikable women in uh, Succession. Who doesn't love Shiv? She's really, really terrible, and I love the shit out of her. Uh, You know, I care a lot. There's all of these shows with, like, deeply flawed unlikable women, but they're fake. Um... Does this actually make it more acceptable for real women to act in unlikable ways or does portraying unlikable women on this sort of like pedestal of entertainment, does it just kind of pathologize it and make it more silly? Like here's here's an example, like the Real Housewives, for example, all of them are very unlikable. And that's like the whole point of the show. It's like check out these unlikable women doing mean things to each other. Do you think that having them be on TV, like makes them 
makes us take them more seriously as business people? Or do you think that it makes us just see them as a spectacle? What I find intriguing is that people are being able to go into rooms and to sell shows that have unlikable women. Like that to me is, is more of the tell because I still think you can like to consume a person who you wouldn't want to work with or to be around, right? Like there's a, there's a differential there. But for the longest time, I was hearing from writers and creators in Hollywood that the minute they would reference what would be perceived as an unlikable character, a female characteristic, the executives were just like, no, the audience won't like her. You'll alienate the audience. And then it was a non-starter. Mm-hmm. And I remember Mindy Kaling telling me, it's like, but she's relatable. Like it's relatable. What she's doing is relatable. And that actually creates more connectivity with the audience than whether or not you like her. Right? If you understand why she would do something, even if you judge her for doing it, like mm-hmm. that, that creates commonality. I also, mm-hmm. I'm going to just take this to say something I want to make sure, because I think it fits in this conversation the way it does in others, is I was really struck during the this past presidential election when all of those women's names were being put in contention for VP, that in years past, what we would have seen is women demurring and being like, oh, like, I'm just so happy to be thought of, or no, I haven't heard anything. Like, it would be an honor, but I'm not... I th- I'm pretty sure it started with Stacey Abrams saying like, yes, I would like the position and let me read you the qualifications that would make me an excellent candidate. And that then they all started to do the same. And what was so powerful to me about it was that it then didn't mean there was any room to be like, well, that's the Stacey Abrams tactic. But over here is the Val Demings tactic. It's right. like, no, like get comfortable with a bunch of women, largely women of color across the board saying that they want to be vice president and that they have all of these good reasons why they ought to be vice president. That to me was like a seismic shift where the next time we have a woman or a person of color up for anything, it just like, it, it, it liberates all of us to be like, yeah, I want that, which has mm-hmm. ordinarily been seen as such an unsavory thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's very much like red Rover, red Rover. It's like, if you're just one running across and trying to break the chain, you're, it's going to be really hard. Everybody's going to be concentrating on like trying to figure out ways that you don't fit or it doesn't work. But if there's like 10 people red rovering over in the search for a VP, it's like, you can't, I, I feel like a, a critical media can't focus on anybody in particular, because everybody has the freedom to want it in the way that they're free to want it. Um, Okay, so let's talk quickly about our fictional favorite unlikable women. Um, Julissa, I'm going to start with you. Who are some like non-real women who are deeply unlikable who you just can't get enough of? I wrote some of them down. (laughs) The Mother of Dragons. Ooh. And that's not her fault. I'm still so mad about Game of Thrones. Um, Fiona from Shameless. I mean, my God, couldn't she learn a lesson? Um, uh, is it Carrie from uh, Sex and the City? Mm-hmm. Carrie? Is it, yes. Carrie? Carrie from Sex Carrie? Yes. Carrie from Sex and the City. I mean, she just self-sabotages so much, but I just cannot get enough of her. Like, I still- Also a narcissist. She is a total- Also a narcissist. Yes. And you know what? When I was younger, like in my 20s and a hot mess, I, w- I saw so much of myself in her. I loved her. I was like, oh my God, I f- feel your struggle. Somebody else understands my struggle. <laughs> and now, you know- <laughs> Now as a damn near 40-year-old woman, I'm like, oh my God, like no wonder all my relationships ended in fucking disaster. Like I was so fucked up. Um, 
and this is going to be controversial because I actually think that Selena, the series, is uh, very uh, important for the Latino community, and I've said as much. This is not a critique on the series. This is just Selena. This is just me imagining the real Selena, and then this like small version of Selena and but I still can't get enough like I can't wait for the second season to come out in in May Mm -hmm. so there you go those are some yeah my favorite fake flawed female character over the last few years and I've talked about this book on on this podcast it's a book that came out last year called Luster by a writer named Raven Leilani and it's her first novel and it is about uh this the main character is named Edie and she's like 23 and she is a young, uh, young black woman who's got a lot of like personal vices who gets into a relationship with a white man who is married and in an open marriage. And Edie is such a hot mess, but I love her. I love her. If you haven't read Luster by Raven Leilani, it's really like an enjoyable book about a like unlikable or a woman with like big time problems. It's, it's so, so good. Um, Alyssa, who are your favorite fake unlikable women? So I realized this was actually a very easy question for me because uh, I identified this in myself. Uh, I guess it was beginning of pandemic. One of my favorite shows that was ever on television was The Affair, which was on Showtime. Oh, I loved that show. Okay. Well, Maura Tierney and Ruth Wilson, Allison and Helen are two of the most unlikable, like every decision they make is fucked up. They, it is, everything is fucking wrong with them and I can't get enough. Like at one point you're like, okay, it's like, is Cole really the victim in all this? It's like, you know, it was really, I, uh, the two of them to me, I just, I loved it. I thought it was liberating. I fucking think it's one of the best finales that was ever on television. But yeah, those two, There's not a lot to like about either one of them, but I love them so much. Mm. Yeah, that was a good show. That was a lot of fun. A lot of good Montauk footage, too. Good Montauk footage, good reasons to hate rich white people. I mean, it's like the whole thing. (laughs) (laughs) Alicia, why don't you bring us on? What are your favorite fake unlikable women? One of my best friends from high school, Avni Doshi, wrote a book that just got shortlisted for the booker. And it was incredible. It's called Burnt Sugar. And it's about this woman living in modern day India and her mother, with whom she has a very fraught relationship, develops dementia. And I will just say she is short of fully sympathetic to her mother. And it is just such an honest and raw portrayal of a mother-daughter dynamic. And like, it's hard to be a caretaker. And it would have been really easy to write a really pat book about, you know, how much she loved her mother and to make it uncomplicated, but it's really complicated and unflinching. And there are times where it's uncomfortable and you're not sure if you're like flipping the pages to get through it faster (laughs) because you want to find out what happens. You want to like get through this awkward encounter, but it was just so you're like, but you also, even if you haven't lived through that specifically, you're like, I know what it is like to have feelings inside myself that I am uncomfortable with or that I wish I didn't have because I am judging myself for not being always the most generous or the most magnanimous. And so it's like mm-hmm. sometimes fun to see a little bit of that in in someone else. It takes a kind of bravery to write yes. characters that are people as they are instead of people as we wish they were because it feels very exposing. Like you can't write a character that you don't, you know, you can't write a character trait that you don't kind of know 
deep down inside. And to write a character like that takes like unbelievable bravery. Like, and when geez. you read a lot of scripts, you start realizing how often people walk up to that line, but then mm-hmm. don't want to cross it. Right. Where like they reveal just enough to be like, Oh, like it's lots of uncomfortable, but like not really to like plumb the depths of the discomfort or the grossness. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's yeah. jumping over that line. They're like, well, you went there, you did it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, I dream of a day when more people are like brave enough to step over that line because it is very frustrating when you're like almost okay. And then what? And then what? And then what? Um, Because sometimes like seeing that other people acknowledge some little ugly or unlikable part of yourself, quote unquote, ugly or unlikable part of yourself makes you feel like less of a bad person to just like live with that, you know, like have your own little Babadook in your understairs carriage of your emotions or whatever. Like, you know, like it's, it's more comfortable to live with it in, in where it, in reality than it is to live in, in denial. Um, Okay, guys, we have to take take a quick break. I think that we've all established that we are all deeply likable people and have never, never done anything wrong and everyone should be our friends. Um, Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to do Sanity Corner. And welcome back. We've reached the part of the show where we are almost done, but not quite. And we take a moment to talk about things that have actually made us happy over the last week. It's been kind of a a heavy news week. And so we figured we'd call an audible today to use a sports analogy, Alyssa. Uh, We we figured we would, what what would be the figure skating way to say this? We're going to pop a double. We're going to pop a double. <laughs> we're going to pop a double and we're going to do a sanity corner this week. This is this is what is making us happy, keeping us sane. Uh, I'll go first. So last night, after putting it off for a long time, putting it off like dessert, not putting it off like I was dreading it, I watched Promising Young Woman for the first time. And uh, if you haven't seen it, if you like this show, you should absolutely see this movie. It is uh, written and directed by Emerald Fennell. It's her first film, as far as I understand. Um, stars Carrie Mulligan. It's an incredible kind of heightened story of a woman who is sort of hellbent on revenge after a sexual assault. That's how it was presented to, you know, that's how I it was framed when it was described to me. Uh, it's so much more than that. It is, uh, it's a story that kind of talks about like, self-sacrifice. It talks about like dedication. There's all these like crazy little like religious imageries in it that almost register as like uh, kind of subconscious. And then at the end of the movie, I was like, oh, this was like a movie about a religious figure. It's so, I really enjoyed it. It's like, you know, very few movies are perfect movies. Not every movie can be Back to the Future Part 3. But uh, no, Promising Young Woman is a really, really good movie. It's a great script. There's a couple moments in the script where I was like, holy shit, this is fucking good writing, Um, which is something that rarely happens to me when I'm watching a movie because a lot of times it's just written to be delivered rather than written to be good writing. There's just some moments in the script that are just fucking good. So if you haven't seen Promising Young Woman and you're somebody who can, you know, stomach watching a film that deals with sexual assault and trauma, and that's something that's like, you know, okay for you to handle, it is, it's a really, really good film. I highly recommend it. It's great. So that's my Sanity Corner this week. It's a heavy one, but it really, it really like made me feel like the writer, director understood something fundamental about 
a certain aspect of the female experience that I haven't really seen on screen. And it was great. Um, Alyssa, do you want to go next? Fuck yeah. Let's go from you to me, which is, you guys, my sanity corner is birds. (laughs) (laughs) I have become obsessed with birds. I have multiple different, I like went down the rabbit hole, as you know, I love to do. And I was like, wait, if you get different kinds of birdhouses, you can attract different kinds of birds. And if you put out different kinds of bird food, you can also get different kinds of birds. So you guys, it is a finch cardinal bluebird fucking bonanza up here at my house, though there's a difference between bluebirds and blue jays. <laughs> yes. And so anyway, I look outside and there's like yellow birds in the trees. I'm like, God, I'm fucking on my game right now. So anyway, it's so dreary and dark and brown. Alicia, you just go ahead and wipe those eyes from the laughter. Um, it's like that time. This is my least favorite time of year where it's like fake spring and then it's cold and like there's not snow that makes it look nice. It just looks like tundra. So mm-hmm. the birds are giving me an immense amount of joy. And when we are done here, I have to go refill my feeders. Oh, you know what the difference between blue jays and bluebirds are as a member of the National Audubon Society? Yes, I know you are. Uh, blue jays <laughs> will annoy the shit out of you. You probably don't want them No, you want the blue here. birds, which almost birds. went extinct and were brought back up here by everyone getting bluebird houses. So, Oh, you're doing your part. You're there keeping, you go. You're keeping them alive. I've been obsessed with uh, corvids lately. Corvids Whoa. are c- crows ravens, like that family of birds. because Yeah, because they're super smart and they can like learn to talk. If you ever want to, if you ever want to go on a real fun rabbit hole, a bird rabbit hole, Alyssa, look up talking ravens on YouTube because they can. This is going to be my new sea shanty, isn't it? Yes, this is going to be your new sea shanty. It will bring light and joy to your life. Ravens are the shit. They're writing it down with my green pen. Um, <laughs> with your green pen. Uh, Julissa, do you want to go next? I felt very left out of that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Zero idea. Uh, but I do want to get some sort of bird something or other because my cats love watching birds. And so get a hummingbird feeder. Hummingbird up. feeder is so easy and you can hang it up and then you can hear them like they sound like angry little robots. They're like, and they get in fights. They're so aggressive and they're so beautiful. And they're just these tiny little things. They're so cute. And cats love watching them. So I recommend Hummingbird Feeder to start for sure. All right. I'll text you after. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, My sanity corner is uh, mason jars. I uh, have been obsessed with mason jars recently. I have used them for everything from my coffee to my cat food to... Uh, rice and flour, and they make a really beautiful display. I bought this Marie Kondo um, thing at the container store that that is sort of like a little shelf that expands, and it's like beautiful dark wood, and my mason jars on it look beautiful. And every time I go to my kitchen, I mean, my house is still a disaster because I haven't finished unpacking, but there's literally this little corner where I have all of my coffee stuff, like my Keurig and my Nespresso and my coffee grinder and my uh, whatever that thing is called where you make a pour over and then my mason jars. And I just walk by there a few times a day and I just look at it and I think this looks so pretty. (laughs) And mason jars are inexpensive and pretty. So if you're looking to make your pantry more beautiful, highly recommend 
mason jar. Julissa, email me your address right now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I have I have a lot of things to add to your collection. Ooh, I love this. Okay. Um I'll do it. I just want to note that during Julissa's mason jar uh, poem of love, a baby entered the chat <laughs> in Alicia's <laughs> screen. It was a very, very cute baby wearing pink pants, which <laughs> so cute. You know, I almost stopped, but I was like, I can't break character. I must be born. <laughs> uh, Alicia, who, who is that? Parents in quarantine, you're like, you said 130. <laughs> like, wrap it up. <laughs> <laughs> that's my baby. That's that's the youngest of my two daughters. That's Feli. Um Aww. which means that my sanity break is that we watch like a lot of Sophia the First and Number Blocks. <laughs> Not sure if you're familiar with the quality programming of Disney Plus and Netflix. But. <laughs> is that is that really your sanity corner? No, that's like my insanity corner. Um, um <laughs> there's a show on Netflix that I've been watching called Call My Agent. It's French. And Love I, it. Isn't it so It's so good. And I think part of what I like had gone into a big Stissel phase where I would watch, are any of you familiar with the show Stissel? It's an Israeli show that's coming back with a third season. Um, is that I've been watching these shows where I don't speak the language that is spoken. So I have to watch, like I can't second screen it on my phone because then I just have mm-hmm. totally missed what's happening. Like my husband tends to sit next to me and do work while I'm watching. He's like, nothing ever happens on this show. I'm like, because you don't speak French. Like, you know, <laughs> how would you know what is or isn't happening on the show? But it's, it's about a talent agency in Paris and there's every episode, there's like an actual French actor or actress who who's on the show. And like, as someone who is adjacent to that universe, I think it's just so it's like really smart. They talk about like ageism and it's very funny. Like, don't let me make it unfunny, but like in the midst of all of this humor, it also tackles some things that make it feel a little meatier. It's very engaging. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's really good. You're so right about the subtitles thing because I cannot resist the the call of the second screen, unless I'm forced to, re- We're, we've been watching dark. It's German show. That's like kind of like German stranger things. I don't really want to give too much of it away. It's a sort of like, what the fuck kind of a show. And I can't not watch because I won't, I don't speak German, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, that call my agent sounds great. Uh, dark is really fun. If you're into stuff, that's like a little bit more brain bending, um, don't forget number blocks. Just, People should check out number no, blocks. Honestly, my four year old is better at math than I am. It's like truly just <laughs> good, good programming. I honestly wonder if like this pandemic is going to produce. Remember how like when we were all little, everyone wanted to be a marine biologist because they went to SeaWorld once. Like I wonder if this generation of kids is going to produce a bunch of people who are like, I'm going to be an epidemiologist because I think Dr. Fauci is cool on TV. Or bird watchers. Like I got very alarmed during that conversation (laughs) that I'm going to come out of quarantine and all my friends will have turned into bird people and I I will be just – down on my luck. Uh, dude, it would <laughs> we should all turn into bird people. Birds are the best. They're so fun. Um, Julissa's face is me. It's like <laughs> <laughs> really? You guys care about birds? Uh, white people. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Julissa really like was just like <laughs> Julissa was into mason jars. I think that's whiter than liking birds. Yes. <laughs> oh my god, please don't say that to me. I'm about to throw them away. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I 
I'm kidding. <laughs> mason jars are. Oh my god, that's the cover way, of the book. You know, Maria thousand shadows. Oh my god, be amazing. Maria Hinojosa is a big uh, bird person. Okay, so that so that thesis you is know. out the window. So <laughs> it is. Yes, and she loves mason jars, Julie. So don't worry about oh. it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, guys, this is really really fun. Um, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Thank you to Alyssa for being my ride or die per usual. Thank you to Julissa for stopping by. Thank you to Alicia Menendez for being a great guest. We had so much fun. Thank you to Senator Amy Klobuchar. Thank you to Representative Lauren Underwood. And thanks to you, the listeners. If you like what you're hearing, please rate us and tell all your friends. And there will be more hysteria for you next week. I am from another planet. This nation Hysteria is a Crooked Media production. Caroline Rustin is our producer. Our executive producer is me, Aaron Ryan. Alyssa Mastermonico is our co-producer, and Brian Semmel is our associate producer. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer, and our editor is Sarah Gibalaska and the folks at Chapter 4. Our digital team is Narmel Konian and Magic Group. Thank you to Juliet Beckstrand for production support every week. Women from around the world have accused fast fashion mogul Peter Nygaard of sexual assault and human trafficking for decades, earning him the moniker Canada's Jeffrey Epstein. But he denies it all, claiming his accusers are lying as part of a vast conspiracy. Evil by Design from CBC Podcasts and The Fifth Estate asks, who are the women and men who have stepped forward and which systems failed them? You can listen to Evil by Design wherever you get your podcasts. When Tillamook ice cream beckons you to the freezer aisle, which irresistibly creamy flavor do you choose? While you're thinking, try not to fuck up the glass. Tillamook ice cream. Extraordinary dairy.